Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD. Volkswagen ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen 60 Mal mehr. Hey, this is Ted. Welcome to Spaßbremse. It's just me on the intro this time, but I'll keep it a real short one because we want to cut straight to a great interview that we have for you all. This one's with Fritz Bartel, who is author of the recent book, The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War and the Rise of Neoliberalism. That's out this year with Harvard University Press. This book's a fascinating account of how two processes that we agree happened roughly simultaneously meaning the, the end of geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and USSR and the rise of neoliberal policies like financialization and austerity, they didn't just happen to overlap. They were actually deeply connected. Of course, this is highly relevant to Germany with all of our talk of the legacies of reunification and the Cold War. But we also talk about the larger geopolitical and economic implications of these two processes and how one reinforced the other. It's a great interview, and we've got the first half on the main feed for you here now. We're planning to release part two, complete with a reaction from me and Michelle, on our Patreon shortly, so make sure to sign up for that if you haven't already. As always, thanks to everyone who listens, and especially to those who support us. And thanks, of course, to Professor Bartel as well, who was really fascinating to talk to, and I really enjoyed the conversation. With that, let's get to the interview. Hey everyone, and welcome to Spaßbremse. I'm joined here by a guest that I've been excited to have on for quite a while. It's Fritz Bartel, a professor of international affairs at Texas A&M at the George H.W. Bush School of Government and Public Service. So Fritz, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. Looking forward to this. Professor Bartel has a really a phenomenal book out recently that, that I was very excited to read. Unfortunately, it uh, took forever to get to Europe, but I, I had pre-ordered it and was waiting anxiously while other people posted little pictures of it on Twitter, and I just got glimpses of it. So it's been a book I really enjoyed and I think presents a really fascinating account. And of course, I'll tell you what the book is. It's The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War, and The Rise of Neoliberalism. Like I said, it's just out recently, and I thought it presents a very, a very fascinating account of of weaving these two things together. That we, you know, we hear a lot about how did the Cold War end. We hear a lot about how did neoliberalism start, and you weave these together. Um, I, I won't spend too much time outlining your thesis, but the, you know, the basic idea is that governments started by making promises, and then later in the 20th century had to break promises, which then you know contributed to both the rise of neoliberalism and the end of the Cold War, as you say. Could you describe this thesis in a little bit more detail and, you know, maybe say kind of what led you to this view? Because it's it's a very satisfying and parsimonious account of, the, you know, these two world historic trends. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for, for that uh, little introduction of it. So I guess I'll start with the, the, the kind of core argument of the book. As you said, basically, uh, I, I began by, by, by thinking with the premise that the Cold War ended in a fundamentally different way than it began. 
So you can think of the Cold War as beginning either as an ideological competition uh, going back to even the late 19th century between some form of democratic capitalism and state socialism or communism, some some form of, of, of socialism. Uh, ultimately, of course, uh, kind of coming to fruition in the Soviet Union and Marxism-Leninism, Marxism, uh, you can think of it as a security competition that bet- began between the United States and the Soviet Union after World War II over control of key industrial centers. Once those things kind of stabilized by the middle of the 1950s, I would say, uh, in my telling, it becomes clear that it's it becomes a competition between these two systems that are really offering their people a kind of fundamentally different way of organizing society, what I would I call the politics of making promises. Uh, and, and they're really offering their people two sets of different promises, both premised on the idea that they're going to promise their people a better life and try to deliver on that promise. And this uh, works out surprisingly well for both sides from roughly the end of the Second World War, the immediate post-war period, through the early 1970s, this is the golden age of capitalism uh, in the West. And it's an age where in the East, they are actually able to keep pace with the West and and credibly say that they're going to uh, even possibly overtake the West in terms of economic growth and providing for their people. Uh, there so- was actually a real fear among U.S. policymakers that that the Soviet Union would overtake them economically, right? Right. At right. this time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, crazy to think of in retrospect where everyone says, oh, communism, you know, it doesn't work, it can't work, and that they were not nearly as confident in the, the right. early Cold War period. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, of course, you can draw parallels uh, to today to China if you if you want, but the same kind of idea that there was a, a country catching up and that causing lots of fear uh, was was very credible, not, both in the eyes of populations and and government officials in the United States and, and Western Europe. Uh, that competition, that competition to that race to make promises, grinds to a halt in the 1970s through the various economic crises of that period. The beginning, I really begin the book with the oil crisis of 1973-74, the the fourfold increase in the price of oil uh, at that time. Uh, then all kinds of inflate, kind of stagflation taking hold in the West, uh, general economic stagnation in the East, uh, further oil crisis, second oil shock in 1979, and general monetary instability, I think, kind of fundamentally alters the nature of this competition to make promises and turns it over time by the 1980s into a competition to break promises, basically, uh, where governments are, are forced at times by global capital markets and energy markets uh, and their institutional kind of enforcers like the IMF, uh, governments are forced to decrease the economic well-being of of their populations. In in other words, to impose austerity and economic discipline on their own people. Governments that can survive that challenge, that can meet that challenge, were able to survive. Those that were not, like those uh, in in the Eastern Bloc, uh, they collapse, and that process of collapse is what we now call the end of the Cold War. So that's really the kind of the broad outline of the book. Uh, basically, the Western states were able to meet this challenge through democratic elections, precisely because they were electoral democracies, and because they could turn to neoliberalism, uh, which you know shifted responsibility for economic and social outcomes to the market from the state. That provided them a way to kind of evade responsibility for 
the process of breaking promises that they were going through. And the East didn't have recourse to any of these political or ideological tools. And that's what they tried to start to do when they reformed themselves in the late 1980s by adopting forms of uh, democratic electoral practice and by trying to craft ideologies, perestroika being the primary one, that allowed for a more kind of coercive socialism, a more coercive social contract. The reason I came to this was basically that I was, in a sense, dissatisfied or just didn't see this type of story in first our histories of the end of the Cold War. So I think people broadly assume because it began as a security competition, it must have ended for reasons of security. And that's how you get these stories of great power diplomacy and what, what were Reagan and Gorbachev doing? And then so they have some some superpower summits and then all of a sudden there's revolutions in 89 and there must be some sort of causal connection between them. Uh, and I was just seeing a very, uh, very different story. So I wanted to tell that. And, and as I got into it, it then became clear that this pressure to break promises was also very key to the to what we think of as the, the global turn to, toward neoliberalism. And so trying to tell these two histories as a shared history coming out of the global economy of the late 20th century, that, that became my, my primary task. Yeah. And like I said, it's a, it's a really fascinating account. Definitely encourage everyone to, to grab a copy of the book. And it's, I want to dwell on this point a little bit because it's, it's counterintuitive. You say, well, the sort of more state socialist countries, you know, which we now pretty commonly describe as authoritarian were less able to impose economic discipline and, you know, break promises in your language than the democracies, which you, you argue quite well, but on, on the face of it, right, it sort of goes against the kind of sales pitch of liberal democracy, which is, oh, you wouldn't want to live in a, in a bad authoritarian state. They're not responsive to their people. You're so lucky to live in a liberal democracy where you get to vote people out when they do something you don't want to do. And you sort of flip that on its head and say, because the state was responsible for the economy, they would take all the blame if something bad happened economically, whereas the Western states were able to sort of outsource management of the economy, either to, to just market forces or to central bankers who are, of course, not elected. And then they can say, hey, we're not doing this. Like, we're like, you're, you're, these are just the forces at work. Like, sorry. And, right, you know, right. have vote for whoever. And then it doesn't, doesn't actually change it. Could you elaborate on that a little more? Because I think that is like maybe the, the crux of understanding this whole argument. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, and it was really something I came to by actually following the financial sources that I was reading from the 1970s when bankers, international capital, basically global capital, believed that the best place to put their money was the Eastern Bloc, precisely because they were authoritarian. And it was the Western states. So I opened, I think it was the first chapter after the introduction uh, with these two communist officials kind of commiserating with each other about the fact that at least they don't have the problems of the West where it seems basically impossible. And, and this crisis of democracy language and debate broke out in the West in the 70s because it seemed like the West was suffering from what they called a, a crisis of governability. Basically, if the challenge was going to be one of somehow imposing discipline on your own people, it seemed that no elector, elected official would ever be able to do, to do that or to oversee such a process. And instead, the Eastern Bloc was helpfully uh, in, in the eyes of global capital, it would not burdened with that problem. It turned out, though, as you said, that precisely because the Eastern Bloc 
governments and, and communist parties had committed themselves to controlling the entirety of their economy and society. That meant that any adverse change in the economic situation would automatically be blamed on them. And this becomes very apparent. The paradigm kind of shifts in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when in Poland, an attempt to impose austerity and basically through increasing consumer prices leads to the formation of the labor union solidarity and the, this, the what historians would refer to as the Polish crisis, where the Polish Communist Party is unable to um, impose austerity on their own people without inciting a, a destabilizing backlash, destabilizing to the point where they fear that their entire governing coalition, go, governing party and the state will be able to survive. And so they turn to martial law, a, a violent crackdown, as the only way of achieving what at the same time in the West, and I write a chapter in this on the book, kind of comparing the Polish crisis to what Margaret Thatcher is doing in Great Britain, where because she's democratically elected and because she makes these appeals to the market, uh, she's able to uh, impose very in some ways, similar uh, kinds of economic discipline on the British population, or at least segments of it. So she, too, is faced with, uh, of course, a union that does not want to accept her policies, the National uh, Union of Mine Workers, the, the miners' strike of 1984-85. But rather than that strike turning into a kind of broad questioning of Thatcher's government and a broad time of crisis for the British state as a whole, it remains a significant event, but an isolated event within the broader British political economy. And so unlike in Poland, where moments or unlike in communist societies, where moments of discipline become these questions of the general state and, and who should be governing the country in Thatcher's case, precisely because she's uh, working with uh, in, within a neoliberal ideological framework and because she's democratically elected and the British people, by and large, except if not, they don't agree with her policies, but they accept the legitimacy of the British state. Uh, she's able to carry out these policies, uh, these disciplinary policies in ways that communist officials just aren't aren't able to do. And as a result, uh, amazingly, I was I was amazed to find many of them end up kind of envying her ability to impose these disciplinary reforms on their on their own population. And I, I try to quote some of those instances in the book. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I was just in uh, Szczecin, Poland, um, just briefly. And, and, you know, they have all these monuments there to, to, to these exact strikes and the solidarity protests, which is a really real hotbed there as, as the one of the big ports. And it's, it's told as part of this triumphalist history, leading leading to the present government. And the, you know, of course, we, we know how, how it all ended. But when you see monuments or, or acknowledgments of the miners strike in Britain, it's all like, well, that was labor's last gasp in this country. And it's these similar kind of labor actions have, you know, obviously, as, as you outlined, ended completely differently. Stettin, if you're if you're a German or the, the Winston Churchill Iron Curtain speech, just for clarity. Yeah, I mean, I think they, in some ways, they take, they have wildly different political meanings. But at the same time, in some ways, uh, Polish labor in the end is also defeated by the. So, mm. um, I end the book by saying that the uncomfortable fact about 1989 is that government was returned to the people only so that the people's power to resist 
the government could be overcome because it's precisely through returning to a democratic form of government that shock therapy is, uh, or the Balsarovich plan is allowed to kind of go through or, uh, or be enacted in Poland without a kind of significant destabilizing backlash as the communists had experienced during the 1980s. So, so, it, you know, it is a, it's both a try. It is a triumph of popular resistance because they were able to change their form of government, but it's also a triumph of broken promises because the price of of doing that, or the price they had to accept for for that, was a kind of uh, disciplinary package that was being proposed by by various Polish officials and with the support of the International Monetary Fund. Yeah, I want to get to this. Um, yeah, we're jumping ahead more at the end. And yeah. no, 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 it's good. It's good to outline the whole timeline now before we get into into a few more details of how this all went down. But yeah, I want to get to this idea of sort of a, it's like a belated broken promise in the Eastern mm. Bloc is like mm. is is what was the price of victory. You know, it's a, mm. it a, a bitter one, obviously. So, like I said, you know, let's sort of go back to the start here, like to 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 actually break down the specifics of how this happened, because that was a, a great kind of big picture view of this whole thing. But you know, there's very specific, concrete events that that, that make this all happen. So, one thing you outline is that the the differences of how easy it was to break promises in the end was not just a product of the types of government; it was also a product of the types of promises that were made to, in East and West, and how those were different. So could you talk a little bit about this sort of era of making promises, which you could say, I don't know, 45 to 70, roughly, and what those promises looked like in East and West and how they were different and how eventually that sets the stage for this divergence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think generally speaking, I actually think the end point that both the East and West were aiming for, and I I bring up the the famous kitchen debate between uh, Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon, 1959, they're in Moscow debating the merits of their two systems. And they're both talking basically about how they want to provide an average steel worker, which is, of course, a, a very important person, a kind of archetype within both of their political systems. They want to provide an average steel worker with the best possible dishwasher with their own home, uh, with a rising standard of living, with intergenerational Upward mobility, although they wouldn't have used that exact phrase, but um, basically that kind of future and and in some ways the present, right? A, a, an upwardly mobile, materially abundant, uh, widely shared future for for the majority of their population. Khrushchev famously says, "We're we're going to catch up to you, and as we do, we'll wave high, and then we'll we'll invite you to come along behind us, right? Because he's very confident that they're going to take over." Um, the major differences between the two are that, as I said, the, the West maintained a distinction between an area of society they called the economy, which they regulated, but they did not fully control, and the state, which was an, an area where they you know, maintained full control or even ownership of the means of production, depending on where you were. Right? In the East, there is an, an area called the economy. There is something called the state, but it's it's definitely something that is much more comprehensively controlled by the Communist Party, and and one that's very you know it's a point of pride. It's a point of ideological pride that the that the party is in control of every aspect of state, society, and economy, and that that leads to 
in some ways, very practically different promises that they make to their people. So uh, price controls are a part of Western societies, but they become much more politically salient in communist societies where the price of bread and it, whether or not it moves becomes fundamental to the social contract of all of these places. And so doing any kind of consumer price reform becomes many communist officials just write it off as something that they, they cannot do. Right. Whereas the price of bread, if it goes up in a Western country, it's generally not good or in inflation or would not be good or decreases in the standard of living wouldn't be good. But it's difficult to tie that directly to any particular government uh, policy. And so the fact that Eastern Bloc governments are much more directly responsible for economic outcomes, I think, is key to why it's moments like 1980 when it's price increases that spur this uh, this broader movement to resist uh, the government. The, the two sides aren't aren't economic equals, of course. So so the West begins vastly richer than the East. Uh, it remains vastly richer by the end of this period of making promises, the early 1970s. Mass consumption becomes a reality in the West and it remains far off in the East. But the key factor in, in maintaining the legitimacy of the East, I think, is that these governments can credibly claim for really the first time in their history that they are converging with, catching up with the West. And that was something, you know, they are modern, essentially modernizing their economies and may, you know, eventually getting to an endpoint that resembles the material abundance of the West. And then on top of that, a more egalitarian society as well. Uh, that's the, that's the type of vision that begins to crumble in the 1970s. In the West, of course, it's crumbling as well, but the West doesn't have anything except its own expectations to catch up to or to meet. And so, so those are some of the main differences between the two sides. And, and another point you make too is that the sort of rhetoric around the promises, right? Whereas in the East, it's very explicitly, you know, you get a house, you get a job. Like that's, that's a, a thing that you get when you're in one of these societies. In the West, it's like, you, you know, you, you will probably get one. But if you work hard, you know, follow the rules, as they always say in American political discourse. But, you know, the, the U.S. government never said, we guarantee everybody in our country a house. It was, you can have this nice type of house if you work hard in the steel mills and, and do this. And this very, it's also worth pointing out, this very gender dynamic that they that they point out, right? It's not, they don't really say right. anything about how the, the role of women in these societies, which by some measures right. in the East was, was better. But it's, how does a male very masculine figure of the steelworker fair. But right, right. But there was an explicit guarantee in the East and not in the West. It was just you had to work for it. And then that lend itself easier to broken promises. Uh, this this is what I um you know I took from from your book is that by having a sort of less ironclad promise to start with, you have one that can adapt itself to the rhetoric of neoliberalism more easily. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, in this case, maybe some, something like what, what, one of the really fundamental promises is, is, or it's really a standard, the full employment standard in the West is not a technical job guarantee, right? In, in the United States, they do in fact begin to debate in the 1970s under Carter, an actual government signed into law that the government needs to provide everyone with a job who wants one. And they end up turning their back away from this because they're really starting to get into the neoliberal 
period. And it's it, it becomes clear to at least the lawmakers at the time that they can't do that. In the East, uh, it's much more ironclad. It's much more uh, written into the ideological boasting and, and propaganda of the regime that something like maintaining full employment or not having the unemployment that is severely uh, hurting the West is a key pillar of their uh, ideological existence and, and the reason why they are superior to materi- materially more advanced countries in the West, right? They, they don't make a claim that they are materially superior, but they do make the claim that they are more equitable and more just because of having these things like a full employment standard or having things like healthcare uh, and universal childcare for, for, you know, lots of daycare, these kinds of things, Con- very controlled consumer price environments and subsidy environments for uh, small families and things like that, uh, that they believe make them more uh, ideologically superior to the West. And, and that kind of entire ideological framework makes it much more difficult to turn to breaking promises. Whereas, as you said, the more abstract promises or really norms that have had started to develop in the West are much more easily jettisoned by the time of the late 1970s, early 1980s, when these more disciplinary policies are um, are coming to, to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting point that, yeah, I think it, you see like the the, the language that, you know, maybe my parents grew up with in the, the 50s and 60s, like it's not unfamiliar today. It's just applied in a very different economic environment. Yeah. And you're sort of catalyst for this this narrative you have, right? I mean, there's there's really there's two big things happening. There's the rise in energy prices and there's the growth of global finance. And this all kind of coincides at the same time with uh, 1971, Nixon uh, ending convertibility to gold, basically the end of Bretton Woods, and then 1973, the oil crisis. So you have these two huge factors all all really colliding in the 1970s which you know, I, I think you're absolutely right to identify as a really crucial decade. And I think there's a lot of scholarship coming out now that really focuses on this decade, which is a, a good thing to see because it, the, right. I think the focus was a, was a bit elsewhere um, for, for quite a while. So let's start with energy, of course, because this is like the, the real the real crux of it, I think, and, and how you sort of how you periodize the book, right, with the, yeah. the 1973 really as the crucial year. Effectively, price of oil goes up, but the USSR has a ton of oil. So you'd think... Yeah, if you're just looking at this first glance, well, that should be good for the Eastern Bloc, right? That they can sell on global markets as valuable commodity, and that will hit the U.S. and other oil importing countries very hard. Could you first talk about maybe how this hit the U.S. and what the reaction was there, but then also why it ended up being problematic in the Eastern Bloc as well? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in the in the West, it delivers the largest recession to that point of the post-war period, uh, while at the same time in some ways similar to where, where we are today, um, not defeating inflation, right? So it, was, it had been thought that if you were to enter a recession and inflation had already been creeping up through 1973, it was already running at about 8%. And normally uh, people would have assumed that if you entered a, a particularly a severe recession, inflation would go away. Instead, that doesn't happen because there is this massive uh, price shock and governments also kind of do everything they can to make sure that this price shock doesn't ultimately harm living standards. So they basically choose to accommodate inflation in order to preserve employment rather than try to defeat inflation uh, itself. So it leads to what 
uh, is famously known as stagflation, right? You have both no very low economic growth and high inflation at the same time. And that causes all kinds of problems for Western governments throughout the 1970s, ones that won't really be resolved uh, until Paul Volcker in the late 1970s and, and the neoliberal uh, turn thereafter. In the East, as you said, normally you would think that the Soviet Union, because it was a massive energy producer, uh, should greet this this uh, fourfold increase in the price of oil. And they do. They do ultimately see it as a good thing for them. And energy becomes the material basis of Soviet power after 1973. But what it also pr produces for them is a, a new imperial conundrum in a way, because their material self-interest is now diametrically opposed to their allies. So before 1973, they had been delivering ever increasing and very cheap levels of many, many things, but in, including oil to their allies and oil was the, the most important. After 1973, once the price is four times higher on the world market, any oil that they give to their allies at their highly subsidized price is a significant loss to them. And so Soviet officials start to think we need to figure out a way to raise the price within the bloc but they know and their allies are very quick to tell them that doing so will produce austerity, pressures for austerity and social instability within places like East Germany, Poland, Hungary, etc. So they have this now governing challenge of what do we do about this? How do we try to pursue our material self-interest while maintaining uh, some something of the interests of our allies? And they end up resolving it by basically creating a rolling price system where the price slowly increases to match the world market. That momentarily resolves the issues for their allies because their allies have access to global finance, uh, financial markets. Uh, but over time, it doesn't kind of, it only delays the crisis for the East. It, it does not allow them to permanently avoid it because eventually energy will be very, very expensive within the Eastern Bloc as well. And then the name of the game is how do you, become more energy efficient? How do you use less of this very expensive product? And that's the challenge that they ultimately can't meet. They can't figure out ways to turn their energy intensive economies into much more energy efficient economies, which leads to all kinds of problems uh, down the road. You can almost see a parallel to the present, right? With the, the United States and its security dependencies in Western Europe, the price of a crucial fossil fuel goes up. Uh, the U.S., exports that liquefied natural gas, of course, I'm talking about, uh, and Europe's under, Western Europe is under, well, I guess, Ukraine and West are are under pressure to either become more fuel efficient or import this very expensive commodity. And so the sort of hegemon of the block has this big windfall, but then it increases tensions within the block. Mm -hmm. And then there's the same kind of fear, right? That European countries say, well, wait, we need we need to figure out a way to provide these fossil fuels to our, uh, our citizens so they can heat their homes, so they can cook, whatever. And if we don't, that will eventually undermine support as part of our block against Russia if there's big citizen unrest. And like, yeah, I, I don't want to be too you know, overly provocative or about this analogy, but like it, it, you see these tensions in which, you know, you think there's a, there's a sort of military alliance as one block, and then there's a windfall for the hegemon within it, and it doesn't actually lead to greater prosperity and unity for the entire thing. Right. Yeah, and and certainly the thing about the last year and a half, of course, the kind of nexus between energy prices and energy politics, geopolitics, and then domestic politics are all 
uh, right back here, you know, in 2022, where we have massive increases in the price of energy, causing geo or interacting with geopolitical change, and also producing very significant crises of domestic political governance for certainly Western countries and the United States, also Russia as well. So, um, yeah, I think this is a, a nexus that continues to define our our politics in uh, sometimes very unfortunate ways, but it's it's there, and we should we should be trying to understand it certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And the second part of this story, which is also a really fascinating interaction between the two blocks that I think a lot of people don't quite grasp sufficiently, is the the rise of finance and how that relates to the necessity to impose economic discipline. You have basically, and you hear this a lot now, sort of bond markets disciplining a country. And you had this with the UK just recently, where you know the budget is it doesn't suit sort of financial markets. And so you need to change your economic policies. So in that sense, it's a source of economic discipline. In another sense, and you write that Western finance and loans to the East actually props up those systems and, and allows them to not break their promises for a while. And this also ties into what are called euro dollar markets, which are sort of rising a little bit in the, in the, the post-war period and then, and then really come into their own in the, the 1970s. C- could you just define euro dollar markets a bit? It's a slightly technical, but I think it's really important for understanding this whole thing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the euro dollar markets, depending on who you believe, uh, they began in London in the, in the 1950s, mid 1950s, uh, basically because the British, uh, the city, the city of London was trying to remain relevant in international finance uh, in an era where the dollar was become was now the dominant uh, currency. And uh, the part, depending on who you believe, some people there's an I guess it's probably an, an urban legend or uh, international financial legend that it was the Soviet Union looking to keep its whatever dollars it made away from the United States so that they wouldn't be, you know, taken in time of war or something, as it has now happened with Vladimir Putin. Um, more likely, it was European and American companies with surplus dollars that they wanted to keep in Europe. And so the euro dollar markets essentially become currency markets. Fund where the, where the currency is any currency that's outside the country of its jurisdiction or its country of origin. So this would be dollars in London. It would be West German Deutschmarks in London or British pounds in uh, Switzerland or something like that. And because they're outside of their country of origin, there's far less regulation uh, around them. They could be regulated, but the British, neither the British nor the American government uh, in the 50s and 60s uh, have an incentive to do so. And so they, they develop as this basically kind of freewheeling, unregulated, uh, but really the leading edge of unregulated global financial capitalism. And yes, they start to grow in the late 60s, early 70s, but then they really take off after the first oil shock of 73, 74, because the oil producers of uh, OPEC need a place to put their surplus funds, all these dollars that they've made. Uh, off of their uh, newfound uh, energy wealth. And so they put them in these euro dollar, uh, they deposit them on the euro markets. Uh, and then through the, the process that becomes known as petrodollar recycling, these banks then lend this these dollars back out to usually oil importing countries to further borrow, or borrow in order to further uh, consume oil, right? So there's this cyclical process, which is 
which is the recycling process that uh, it becomes well known. So effectively, American consumers pay a lot for oil to the oil producing states. All those dollars go back to Western financial institutions, and then many of them are lended then to their geopolitical rivals in the East to, to keep to, to fund those states, which then are keeping up this arms race. Like it's a, yeah. it's a very perverse it's, sort of system. I, I'm trying to remember exactly how I read it in the book, but basically unregulated or a crisis of capitalism, I think is how I phrase it, becomes the source by which state socialism funds its defense against the capitalist system, right? Only by the surplus capital generated by the first oil shock, which gets deposited on these markets and then lent out to a country like Poland or Hungary or uh, the Soviet Union to a degree. Only, only through that process are these countries able to defend themselves against the disciplinary pressures coming from the West, uh, eventually coming from an organization like the IMF. That process lasts only so long as markets are confident that you, what you're doing domestically is prudent by their standards, which basically means that they're confident they'll get repaid. As we said earlier, Eastern Bloc governments seemed like a perfect place to put your money because they were helpfully unresponsive to their own population. So it was assumed they would be able to impose austerity whenever they needed to. And it's precisely then the Polish crisis of the early 80s when it becomes clear that actually communist governments can't impose austerity very easily, that the global financial markets lose confidence broadly in the Eastern Bloc. It precipitates a severe financial crisis across the Bloc in the in the early 1980s, to which they're able to respond. And in some ways, they get, they regain global market financial access, global financial market access. But they never regain the kind of standing that they had in the 1970s. And so they're now dependent throughout the 1980s. Uh, their domestic policy is dependent on maintaining the confidence of global capital markets. And whenever that confidence goes away, that's when they're going to have to start imposing discipline at home to please their foreign creditors, which is precisely what happens in 1987, 88, and 89 across the Eastern Bloc. You have, you know, it starts out as what almost sounds like a communist dream, right? You know, in terms of heightening the contradictions and you say, oh, well, this capitalist crisis, as you, as you write it, this capitalist crisis is funding us now in the East. And then it turns out to be, to flip around and say, you know, now, now instead of providing for our people, um, you know, in, in a socialist way, now we have to do what Western financial markets want and we're, we're subservient to them, which then is exactly obviously how you wouldn't want to be right. from the perspective of one of these governments. And so to get to this idea of breaking promises, we, we talked about it a bit at the intro, but how did East and West break them differently and why did people respond differently on, on either side of the wall? I mean, you know, you say there was these sort of uprisings that people couldn't quite contain in the East. Obviously, there was resistance in the West. It was just ultimately overcome. So how were the promises broken differently? And then, yeah, like, what? why do you think it, it broke down differently? Is it really all of this democratic legitimacy question? Or, or what else is at work here? Yeah, so I would point to two moments um, in terms of how the West broke promises and why why something similar was not available in the East. So Paul Volk, the Volcker shock, Paul Volcker's massive shock to U.S. dollar interest rates, which begins 
a little bit in the fall of 1979, but really in earnest a year later uh, after the U.S. presidential election of 1980. Um, right. And this he, is the huge rise as the chairman of the Federal Reserve, sorry, uh, yeah. appointed by Carter, but then mostly working under Reagan of jacking up interest rates and effectively causing a huge recession in the efforts to, to try to fight inflation. I think probably most listeners know that, but just to outline right. that clearly because it's so important. Right. Yes. So it, he himself is thinking uh, in, in 1979, and certainly the rest of the Federal Reserve Board is thinking, how exactly can we raise interest rates so high? Because we know that it will be politically uh, so difficult to do this because it will be generally perceived as indeed it was, an attempt to uh, engineer a recession uh, in order to, to halt inflation and thus be very politically un unpopular. And this is where he turns to the doctrine known as monetarism, which popularized by Milton Friedman at the time. And, and in some ways, I think our histories take Volcker as a kind of very eager disciple of monetarism, as a, as a kind of ideologue who embraced a, a classic neoliberal policy of, of Milton Friedman. Instead, he's very clear in, in his uh, language that it's, he's not a, he doesn't believe monetarism is like a superior way to manage the money supply or, or the financial system. Instead, it provides him a way out of the difficult politics of breaking promises of, of raising interest rates. If he can, as the monetarists say, say that he's only targeting an increase in the money, he's controlling the money supply rather than interest rates. Then interest rates can go as high as they as they want, as as the market would send them, and it will look like, as one of the Federal Reserve officials said, it look it will look like they they don't have their hands on the process. He said it was essentially saying, "Look, no hands." So there's this kind of way by switching to market forces, or at least the appearance of market forces, and it really is an appearance because ultimately, in controlling the money supply, he's still controlling the interest rate. He's just doing it indirectly. But by switching to, to the appearance of market forces, these Western officials can can do something, can evade this responsibility for for negative political, uh, negative economic and social outcomes that the East simply can't do. And so that's one of the elements of the of neoliberalism in, in action in terms of how it actually gets enacted. That's just not available to uh, Eastern Bloc leaders. You have this really interesting you know, just to sort of emphasize this point, right, of the, it's like the, the democratically account, uh, elected people wanted this to happen, but they also liked having their hands washed of it, right? This is uh, just quoting from, this is in a Tim Barker's piece in N plus one, mm. um, where he quotes uh, Reagan's economic advisor, Michael Musa. He says that to establish its credibility, the Federal Reserve has to demonstrate its willingness to spill blood, lots of blood, other people's blood. And it's this, this idea that we, we have to hurt people. I want them to hurt people because no one voted for Volcker. And it, it, it just indicates what you're talking about so well of, of, of how they're able to sort of skirt responsibility for these broken promises. But yeah, back to, back to well, what and you're I, saying. You know, I, yeah, that's, that's a, I remember that quote. I, it was one of those where I was like, man, I wish I had, I don't remember finding it to put it in the, I didn't put it in the book, but because it's very, um, Evocative, certainly. I, you know, there is this way in which it is an evasion, but at the same time, it's not. It's not like he actually pulls the wool over people's eyes. I mean, every and and in fact, many people who get harmed by these policies are very aware that Paul Volcker is the one doing it to them. 
And so there's, you know, he gets death threats. He gets um, massive protests at the Federal Reserve. Um, he's on the cover of all kinds of magazines and everything. So so it's very clear who's doing it. And in some way, and in some ways, the fact that he's unelected is then key to why he's able to sustain this policy uh, perhaps longer than democratically elected officials would. So in that way, it is key kind of that there are unelected officials who have an immense amount of power. At the same time, I, I the book ultimately does come down on the side of democratic legitimacy being key because of the other major incident I was going to, to talk about, which is, again, Thatcher's defeat of the miners' strike. It's very clear to me anyway that the fact that she was democratically elected was an important reason why there was not broader resistance to her policy. So if you look at British public opinion in the during the strike, uh, Thatcher's approval rating sits at something like 42%, 43%. But the approval rating of the police who are doing the actual strike breaking is at 92%. Right? So, the, so the state itself is overwhelmingly legitimate, even if the political leader themselves is remains very divisive. And and the fact that this, how does the state reproduce its own legitimacy? It does so not just through democratic elections, but partially. And that kind of legitimacy of the state uh, in particular, first of all, it, it isn't just a state in the East. Of course, it's a party state. Uh, and that and the state remains or never achieves that kind of level of, of legitimacy that's available to those in the West because of, of democratic elections, not only democratic elections, but I think that is a key part. So so that those two pillars, I guess, democratic legitimacy and the ability to shift responsibility to the market are, are the reasons why what the West is able to do this and the East is not. To, to go back to this sort of difference between, you know, solidarity and the minor strike, to me, it's a, a lot of it's a construction of like, who is the people, right? Because Thatcher can say, oh, it's actually late established labor that's this, this sort of force that doesn't have the country's best interest at heart. And so I, as the elected representative for you, will take them down. But That's in Poland, yeah. solidarity is the people against this sort of other government. And it's like, it's the total opposite direction. And that, that's the legitimacy question as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of, I, I focus on Thatcher's main strategist. That was his actual title, like chief strategist, John Hoskin. And he talks about how he wants events to communicate messages to people and how like eventually events in Britain and strikes in particular will communicate to the British public that it organized labor is the problem, not the government. And precisely in terms of how she defines these terms and, and who becomes the enemy, when she does call the miners the enemy within, right? Enough people actually ended up believing that that was true, that the enemy within was not Thatcher, but was the miners, uh, that she was able to carry it out. And in the East, events never communicated the same kind of uh, message, right? The, the enemy within was never solidarity. It was always the, the, part, the Polish Communist Party. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to part one. And of course, especially thanks to Professor Bartel. Really enjoyed talking to him. And part two, we'll get into some more conceptual aspects and some counterfactuals in the history that he outlines that we get into uh, towards the end of our conversation complete, as I mentioned earlier, with a reaction and analysis from Michelle and myself. So we'll see you then. Thanks for listening.